Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 205. It's titled, Is the Federal Reserve Really Printing Money? In April 2017, Deputy Governor John Nicolaisen of the Norwegian Central Bank gave a speech to the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters. In his talk, he quoted the book Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. It's by Yuval Noah Harari. I've not read the book. Others have recommended it. And just based on this quote, makes me want to read the book. He writes, trust is the raw material from which all types of money are minted. That's a theme I've covered on the show a lot. Specifically, episode 84, money is trust. But he continues, the fact that another person believes in cowrie shells or dollars or electronic data is enough to strengthen our own belief in them. Christians and Muslims who could not agree on religious beliefs, could nevertheless agree on a monetary belief. Because whereas religion asks us to believe in something, money asks us to believe that other people believe in something. And then Deputy Governor Nicolaisen goes on to say, money has value because, and only because, everyone believes in its value. Money is minted from trust. This idea that money asks us to believe that other people believe in something reminds me of Ben Hunt. He's the chief, I think he's the chief investment strategist at Salient Partners. He writes a newsletter called The Epsilon Theory. And one of his ongoing themes is this idea of the common knowledge game. That investment markets, the narrative gripping the market depends on what does everyone know that everyone else knows? Or what does everyone believe that everyone else believes? And how do they act on those beliefs? In episode 201, I quoted extensively from the book Balanced Asset Allocation. It's by Alex Shahidi. But there was one aspect of the book I didn't, I didn't quote from because I knew I just didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. Here's the quote. The Fed, as in the U.S. Federal Reserve or the Central Bank, has the unique ability to print money and buy assets. It can essentially create more money and inject it into the economic machine. This idea the Fed can print money. 
I had a number of discussions on this while I traveled for the past couple months. This is a common belief. Does everyone know that everyone knows that the Fed prints money and that will lead to high inflation or hyperinflation eventually? Did Google, and I did, Google the phrase, is the Federal Reserve printing money? The first top of the list, first page, it's an article by Kimberly Amadeo in a, a online magazine, I guess, called The Balance. I had not heard of it. Here's what she writes. Here's her explanation to answer this question. Is the Federal Reserve printing money? She, here's the quote. When the Fed wants to print money, it lowers the target for the Fed funds rate. Fed funds rates are what banks are required to hold in reserve each night. Or Fed funds are what banks are required to hold in reserve each night. If needed, a bank will borrow Fed funds from another bank to meet the requirement. The interest rate it pays is called the Fed funds rate. When the FMOC, the Federal Open Market Committee, lowers the target for the Fed funds rate, it allows banks to pay less for borrowed Fed funds. Since they are paying less in interest, they have more to lend. A bank would like to lend every dollar it doesn't have to hold in reserve. Do banks lend reserves? Is the Fed printing money in the form of creating reserves that banks have and then banks can lend? She goes on, when people say the Federal Reserve prints money, they mean it's adding credit to its members' banks' accounts or its members' banks' deposits. The Fed buys treasuries and other securities from banks and replaces them with credit. All central banks have this unique ability to create credit out of thin air. That's just like printing money. A little further down that first page, the St. Louis Federal Reserve. They write, one of the most common questions about the Federal Reserve is this, does the Fed print money? There are really two ways to address this question in terms of the actual physical printing. No, the Fed doesn't actually print or produce money in any form. They point out that the coins come from the U.S. Mint. Paper currency comes from the U.S. Treasury Bureau of Engraving and Printing. So the Fed distributes currency after its printing. However, they go on, what many questioners might really be asking is whether the Fed has the ability to control how much money is in our economy. That's a different story. The Fed adds to or subtracts from the amount of money in the economy by buying or selling U.S. Treasury securities and other financial instruments. This is referred to as open market operation, since these transactions take place in the open market. They point out the Fed isn't allowed to buy securities directly from the U.S. Treasury. The Fed pays for those securities by crediting funds to the reserves that banks are required to hold, either cash in their vaults or deposits at a reserve bank. So in that sense, they go on, we can think of printing money as adding reserves to the banking system, said David Wheelock, vice president and deputy director of research. Then he goes on and says, these additional reserves enable banks to make more loans. So this process of creating reserves enables banks to make more loans which expands the money supply. 
Is that what everyone believes and knows? The Federal Reserve buys treasuries. Step one, that adds reserves to its member banks. And now there's $2.2 trillion of reserves, which is a liability of the Federal Reserve. And those $2.2 trillion is sitting as assets on banks' balance sheet. Three, banks lend out those reserves. That lending of those reserves means there's more money injected into the economic machine, and that can or will lead to inflation, if not hyperinflation. There are some very, very smart people that echo, reinforce these same points. Here's Ben Bernanke, and all these quotes come from a post by Colin Roche of Pragmatic Capitalism, and I'll, I'll definitely link to it in the show notes. Here's Ben Bernanke. This is, this is in 2009, former Fed chairman. But as the economy recovers, banks should find more opportunities to lend out their reserves. Here's Nobel Prize winner Eugene Fama. The Fed knows that if there is an opportunity cost from these massive reserves they've injected into the system, we're going to have a hyperinflation. Lawrence Kotlikoff, a Boston University economics professor, the Fed is paying the bank's interest not to lend out the money, but to hold it within the Fed in what we are what are called excess reserves. Alex Blinder, Princeton University economics professor, maybe it's Blinder. I should know that. He's pretty famous. 2009, he says, in normal times, banks don't want excess reserves, which yield them no profit. So they quickly lend out any idle funds they receive. Art Laffer, Laffer, former Reagan economic advisor, given sufficient time, banks will make enough new loans until they are once again reserve constrained. The expansion of money, given an increase in the monetary base, is inevitable and will ultimately result in higher inflation and interest rates. Finally, Paul Krugman, Nobel Prize winner, Princeton University economics professor, columnist. In 2012, he wrote, First of all, any individual bank does, in fact, have to lend out the money it receives in deposits. Bank loan officers can't just issue checks out of thin air. Is that what everyone believes? That they're pretty smart, smarter than me. I've not said that, have I? I've said something similar to what Governor John Nicolaisen of the Norwegian Central Bank said in that same speech when he quoted that money is trust. Here's his quote. So how do banks create money? The answer to that question comes as quite a surprise to most people. When you borrow money from a bank, the bank credits your bank account. The deposit, the money is created by the bank at the moment it issues the loan. The bank does not transfer the money from someone else's bank account or from a vault full of money. The money lent to you by the bank has been created by the bank itself out of nothing. 
Fiat. Let it become. The money created by the bank does not disappear when it leaves your account. If you use to make a payment, it is just transferred to the recipient's account. The money is only re- removed from circulation when someone uses their deposit to repay a bank, as when we make a loan payment. The money supply is therefore only reduced when banks' claims on the rest of the economy decreases. To sum up, he says, banks create money out of nothing and withdraw it when loans are repaid. Growth in total bank credit is normally matched by growth in the money supply. Now, maybe he's just some rogue central banker in Norway. Here's the European Central Bank. Commercial banks can also create so-called inside money, i.e. bank deposits. This happens every time they issue a new loan. Banks create money when they issue a new loan. Here's the Bundesbank, the German central banks. Banks can create book money just by making an accounting entry. According to the Bundesbank's economists, this refutes a popular misconception that banks act simply as intermediaries at the time of lending, i.e. that banks can only grant credit using funds placed with them previously as deposits by other customers. By the same token, excess central bank reserves are not a necessary precondition for a bank to grant credit and thus create money. Banks don't need reserves to make a loan. They create it. It's an accounting entry. So why are all these economists saying that's not how it works? Where central bankers saying that is, banks can create money. Loans create deposits. Can't be, got to be one or the other, doesn't it? Well, here's, this solves it a little bit. This is the Bundesbank again. They write, despite its ability to create money, a bank still has to fund the loans it has created since it needs central bank reserves for the cashless settlement of payments when site deposits created by lending are transferred to other banks. What are they saying? Well, yes, they can create money out of thin air. They, they issue the loan. They create deposit. That's, that is a liability on the asset side of their balance sheet. They have a loan receivable. But what if the, the, the individual taking out the loan decides to go spend the money? The money leaves the bank and then it gets put in another bank. And so the, the, bank, the, the bank that made the loan has to have sufficient reserves to cover the money that's coming out because of the loan. Bundesbank continues, if a bank lacks the reserves needed to settle the payment, It can, under certain conditions, wait until the deposits have been moved and the resulting need for reserves become clear and only then procure the reserves it requires. These funds can be borrowed either in the interbank market, the Fed funds market in the case of the U.S., 
so from other banks, or directly from the central bank. Finally, the Bundesbank writes, a bank will try to estimate the volume of reserves it will need to cover its customers' payment transactions and bear that projection in mind in its business decisions in matters of lending and funding. Banks in the U.S. only have to keep roughly 0 to 10% of their deposits in reserves. That's all. Everything else would be excess. But at the end of the day, they're not making decisions to lend based on how many reserves they have. They have to factor it in. It is a factor in case the money comes out after making the loan, but other deposits are coming in. You have all this money going in and out. They decide on how much they want to lend and money to create based on the demand from households and businesses. What, what, do, what do people want to borrow? That's a key, a key indication. Then they decide if they're credit worthy. They make the loan. They create it. The money out of thin air. And only then do they look to see if they have sufficient reserves or to make sure they have sufficient reserves to cover their deposits and to potentially fund the loan. So if you go back to our five steps, the Federal Reserve does buy treasuries and that adds reserves to banks, $2.2 trillion we mentioned. Banks, step three, banks create money deposits when they make loans based on demand. They need sufficient reserves to meet minimum requirements and to cover outflows when deposits leave the bank. And that act does increase the money supply and leads potentially to inflation. If there's so much money created and the capacity of the private sector to produce goods and services is constrained. The vast majority of the money in the U.S. is created in this way by banks in coordination with the central bank. So now we need to look at what has has actually happened in practice. Has the Fed injected more money into the economic machine? Has the money supply increased dramatically? because of quantitative easing? Before we answer that, let me share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. 
That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Central banks measure the amount of money in, in the system using what are known as monetary aggregates. There, in the U.S., there's two. There's M1 and M2. M1 consists of currencies, so paper, bills, and notes, and traveler's checks, and demand deposits at commercial banks, such as checking accounts. So essentially, checking accounts currency, and traveler's checks. That's M1. And that excludes money held by the U.S. Treasury, Federal Reserve Banks, and in the vault at depository institutions, so banks. So this is money outside uh, of those organizations, out in the, in the private sector. Currency, traveler's checks, and checking accounts. M2 is everything in M1, plus savings deposits. So your savings account, time deposits, which would be CDs or certificates of deposits, and balances in retail money market mutual funds. So essentially these are cash equivalents. Things that are are actual cash are pretty close to cash, cash that have a stable value. So what have the aggregates been? M1 in March 9th, 2009, so at, at the depth uh, of the recession, right before we had a turn, there was $1.6 trillion in M1. As of April 30th, 2018, there's $3.7 trillion. So, so it looks like a hockey stick, about 130% increase in M1. What about loans or debt outstanding? Total private sector debt. Non-financial, so excluding banks, so households and businesses. Q3 2008 was 25 trillion. It fell to three and a half trillion, and now we're at 29 trillion. So about a four trillion dollar increase. So we've seen an increase in the money supply, both in terms of loans, but actual cash holdings or checking deposits. 
And so this idea that has the Fed created money through its federal, its quantitative easing program? They have. Have they injected it into the economic machine? Yes, in one aspect, they have. But there's an important caveat that I'll get to in a moment. The New York Fed has a blog called Liberty Street Economics. And I'll link to it in the show notes because they have a chart that, that I want you to look at. If you remember my free insider's guide, you already have gotten those links in the weekly email, free email I send out every week right after I release the podcast. There you'll find that valuable content as well as an essay I do, often covering things I wasn't able to cover in the actual podcast episode. So sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. Here's what they write. The chart below shows that M1 growth is highly positively correlated with the growth in reserves generated by Fed's asset purchases. The reason for this is simple. Reserves held with the central bank are assets for the bank. We've talked about that. That's an asset, that reserve. It's created out of thin air by the Federal Reserve. As the Fed expands reserves that go on, banks must either sell other assets, keeping the overall level of assets unchanged, or issue more liabilities or equity, expanding the level of assets or some combination of the two. So they have these new reserves. They now have new assets needs to be matched by a liability or equity if the bank, so it's books balance. Now, if the bank already has treasury bonds on its balance sheet as an asset, as part of QE, it would just essentially swap that treasury bond for new reserves. And then the bank's asset balance would stay the same. But we've seen that the money supplies actually increase the money supply in terms of check, check, checking deposits. Liberty Street Economics goes on. In fact, banks did not reduce their overall holdings of other assets as reserves increased. Instead, banks mainly funded these new assets by issuing additional liabilities, including deposits. Over the same period, interest rates were low, reducing the incentive for households to place their funds in interest-earning savings accounts rather than checking accounts. Correspondingly, much of this increase in bank liabilities has been in the form of checkable deposits. This explains why M1 growth has grown more than M2. So M1, again, doesn't include savings accounts. But what they're saying is that banks' assets actually, their balance sheet ballooned. As they've gotten more reserves, the liability side of their balance sheet has also grown in the form of more checking deposits. So does that mean there's way, way more money? Yes, but it depends on how you define money. If we define money as checking accounts, yeah, That's how it worked. But here's the thing. How did those deposits 
get there. Think about the, the central bank. If they went out and bought a treasury bond from a household and exchanged it for cash, bills, you know, dollars, that, that's another transaction. The, the Fed cre- can, has the money, they create it, and they, they just exchange it. They exchange it with a household. Now the, the Fed has the treasury bonds. The household has the cash. And then they take that cash and they deposit it in the bank. That's what happened. The balance sheet expanded. That's all that happened. But what's, here's what happened. Is that household more wealthy? No. They had an asset, a treasury bond, and they swapped it for either cash, but effectively for a bank deposit. In fact, the treasury bond, maybe it was, I mean, it's, it's like my account, right? I have Schwab. Let's say I have a treasury bond. I sell it. I get the cash and I move it to my bank, to my checking account. So what happened is effectively there was not, there was new money created in the sense of more money supply because households and businesses became more liquid. There was less treasury bonds held by the private sector because the Federal Reserve bought those. And now the private sector has more cash, primarily in the form of bank deposits. So they're not any wealthier. They're just more liquid. When you sell an asset and now have cash, do you feel more wealthy and are you more likely to spend? And will that create inflation. If everybody decides to spend their assets, we could create inflation that way because we could constrain the capacity of the private sector to produce. If everybody wants to buy products and services, liquidate their savings, that definitely could spark inflation. But they haven't, which is why M1 has actually increased so significantly as part of the quantitative easing program, because the treasury bonds, the assets were sold, the proceeds were moved to cash and are primarily held as in checking accounts and to some extent savings accounts on the balance sheets of banks. So in summary, does the Federal Reserve print money? They do create money when they buy treasury bills because those reserves, again, that's also accounting entry. They just credit the reserves on banks. That's a liability of the Federal Reserve. It's an asset of its member banks. It's an accounting entry, so the money is created out of thin air. Those reserves are now on as an asset of the banks. They can create money, commercial banks, when they make a loan. That's also an accounting entry. They don't look to the reserves to decide whether they're going to make a loan or not. They look at the demand for loans. They look at their their business plan as, as a bank. But they do refer to the loans because once they create the money, make the loan, those loans have to clear. And so they will make sure they have enough reserves. But the reserves is not, they're not sitting there. They don't have to access those reserves to make the loan. They can always borrow 
the reserves if they come up short. So that's not a factor. And so we're sort of somewhere in, in between. So everyone's a little bit right and everyone's a little bit unclear. And at the end of the day, we've not had hyperinflation or not much inflation at all. Why? Because the private sector hasn't been w- willing to borrow enough. So there hasn't been enough money created to strain capacity of the private sector to produce goods and services. There's not been that constraint, which has pushed up prices. It just hasn't happened. Nor has the private sector, households and businesses, been willing to spend the money to create the demand that, again, could constrain the private sector. Could happen. Something we're monitoring, but it hasn't happened yet. And it isn't because the Federal Reserve has printed money. That's episode 205. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. No investment advice provided here. Just general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>